Welcome back aboard the Maritime History Podcast, everyone, where this time we have episode 34, Marathon and Persian Naval Power. This time we're going to take a look at the last Persian invasion of Greece that King Darius managed to launch prior to his death. That does still leave us uh, to look at the later and more well-known invasion that was led by his son Xerxes, but before we get there, we need to consider the role that ships and transports played in the build-up to the Battle of Marathon, and then how the Greeks worked their way toward a naval build-up following their improbable victory on those plains. A lot of the material that we'll cover today is rather standard fare in the history books, especially if you're already a history buff or maybe you've listened to any of the other well-done podcasts out there that focus on this time period. Nevertheless, I'll try to bring at least the hint of a maritime-centric bent to our talks about these topics today. We will talk about Persian naval power a little bit, though maybe not directly, that'll kind of just be sprinkled throughout the discussion. Ultimately, I hope that this episode will help set us up well for the truly maritime-centered naval confrontations of the Xerxes-led invasion of Greece. To get the mental ball rolling a bit today, it's useful to recap last episode briefly, as we usually do. Last time, we considered the events that occurred during the year of the Archonship of Themistocles, a young man at that time who is now the figurehead of the naval glory that Athens eventually managed to achieve. The essence of what we considered was that during his Archonship, a fortification was started but not finished at the Piraeus. Then, in 492 BCE, during the latter half of his year-long term, Persia sent an army that conquered Macedonia and areas to the north of Greece. After that, though, they suffered many casualties when the transport fleet and navy were thrashed by a storm off of Mount Athos in the northeastern part of the Aegean Sea, this as they were en route to subjugate Eretria and Athens as payback for those two cities' roles in the Ionian Revolt, which we've also discussed in the past. So while the Greeks may have dodged a bullet there, we can't ultimately know what would have played out had this Persian fleet landed on the Attic Peninsula. The other focus of our talk last time was on the Cold War between Athens and Aegina, a conflict that began decades and decades before the time of Themistocles. We can view this really as a long-term territorial struggle between two city-states that shared a common geographical region, although the enmity did erupt into flashes of armed conflict in 491 and 490 BCE, especially when Athens and Sparta began to fear that Aegina might swear allegiance to Persia and present the empire with a perfect base of operations, laying just off the coast of Athens and not that far from Sparta as well. So, as things stood in early 490 BCE, 
Aegina was prevented from joining the Persian team, but Athens still didn't have a major naval force to speak of, not one that could realistically rival the huge fleet that Persia had cobbled together from Phoenician, Egyptian, and other sources still. Although Persia's fleet suffered greatly in that storm off Mount Athos, Darius had the resources and manpower to rapidly re-strengthen his naval forces and mount a second invasion of Greece. That brings us back to where we left off last time, if I'm not mistaken. So here we go for today. Our main focus for these events continues to be Herodotus, and there's not really too much that we've skipped over yet, so it's pretty safe to jump right in with the Persian land army preparing to board their ships over in southeastern Asia Minor. I may as well just be straightforward with it early on today as well. There really aren't any major naval engagements in the historical record for what we will cover today. It might be a slightly shorter episode, but we will still cover events and developments that were crucial in allowing Athens and the Greeks to form the naval force that they ultimately did. We will get there, so bear with me if you can. Now, as the Persians made ready their army in Cilicia, Herodotus states that, quote, all the ships that had been levied from the various districts arrived to join them, as well as the horse transport ships. After putting the horses on board these ships, the land army embarked, and the expedition sailed to Ionia with a fleet of 600 triremes. I did find one source that claimed this to be the earliest mention in the historical record of ships being used as horse transports in a military context. I can't find any specific example that disproves this assertion, but as we all know, just because I can't find it doesn't mean that it's non-existent. So the claim may not be entirely true, but it's hard to disprove claims like that a little bit. The fair approach here then is to say that this is probably the oldest mention of ships being used as horse or cavalry transports, or it's among the oldest anyway, and I'll leave the record open for revision here. Cavalry forces play an increasingly important role in the development of warfare and military strategy. So seeing them transported by ship does, of course, expand the possibilities for military leaders like Darius to use cavalry in locales where it may not have been feasible at earlier stages in history. For me, this is one of the simple and often overlooked roles that ships play. It's so simple that many times it's not even mentioned. I suppose it can be assumed, and most discerning students of history will recognize the integral role that ships play in such matters, but stating it clearly and considering how things would have played out differently had ships not been used to transport horses and cavalry forces, it's an interesting thought exercise at the very least. The events at hand for us today are perhaps bad ones to use as a case study, but nonetheless, cavalry transport ships have 
obviously played a big role at other points in history. There's little detail included in the sources beyond the number that Herodotus lays out for the size of the Persian trireme fleet, which, as we said, was 600. Herodotus himself doesn't give us a number for how many men were in the Persian force as a whole, and the numbers given in the varying other sources range anywhere from 90,000 to half a billion, the latter there being blatantly outside the realm of believability, probably possibility at this point in history as well. So then the size of the transport fleet becomes important in trying to roughly estimate the size of the armed force that the Persians ferried to Greece. An estimate that I've seen in several different places takes Herodotus at his word that there were 600 triremes in the Persian fleet. And being generous with our estimate, we could place maybe 40 armed soldiers on each ship, along with 60 rowers, because many sources assume that these triremes, as Herodotus called them, may have been more like pentaconters and only able to hold 50 to 60 rowers, but even if they there were some triremes in the fleet, they could have used fewer rowers and focused on using the ships as transports rather than as battleships, the way that we typically think of triremes. Ultimately, there's a lot of estimation going on here. Beyond the rowers and the soldiers, the horse transports as well may have been separate, sturdier ships, not triremes. But even if the horses were shoved onto these triremes as well, we could feasibly envision a distribution of men in a way that would result in an armed force of 25,000 Persians making their way to Greece. That doesn't, of course, include a figure probably over 25,000 of the number of oarsmen that would have rowed the ships, which of course brings the total number way up. But then again, the rowers were trained as rowers, and uh, unless there's a hole in the historical record, a lot of the rowers didn't participate in the conflict on land. The soldiers were trained specifically to fight on land, and the oarsmen to man the oars. All in all, though, a 25,000-soldier army, uh, being probably the ceiling for our estimate of the Persian land force, is still amazingly large compared to uh, anything that the Greeks would have seen up till this point. So far as we've gotten in our discussion today, though, the Persian army has only boarded their ships and reached Ionia, and from there they charted a rather surprising course. In the previous Persian ventures, they'd always opted to take the northern route that we discussed last time, sailing north up the Ionian coast and toward the Hellespont. The land forces in the past had typically marched north from Sardis, or another Persian-controlled city in Asia Minor, and in the first advance by Darius, the Persians then built a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont for the army to march over and into Thrace. Likewise, in our last episode, we saw how the army solidified its control of Thrace and then conquered Macedon, 
So the Persians again elected to skirt the northern coasts of the Aegean, and it was there off Mount Athos that the storm halted the navy's advance. This time, though, Darius forestalled all possibility of disaster in the unpredictable waters of the northern Aegean. After they reached Ionia, he commanded his navy and troop transport ships to sail west from Miletus and to island hop the Aegean directly toward Euboea and Attica, the two areas that he had long desired to bring under Persian control. In addition to the lower risk of running into catastrophe again, Herodotus also gives a nod to the fact that Darius chose this more direct route toward Attica because it brought his navy right through the chain of Aegean islands that were home to several other Greek city-states that he felt needed to learn lessons of their own. Naxos was one of these islands. The Persians came, they landed for a while, and as they sailed over the horizon to the northwest, they left behind them columns of smoke rising from the ruins of the Naxian temples and homes. The fleet then landed on the island of Delos, the island that the Greeks revered as the home of Apollo, and the island that would later become the central meeting point for the members of the Delian League. Here, Darius chose to execute a tactic of evoking awe, as opposed to the shock tactics that he'd hammered Naxos with. He burned 300 talents of frankincense upon the altar to Apollo, as a show of devotion to the god, supposedly, but it was also a not-so-subtle way of indicating that Persia was now in control and allowed Greece to continue worshipping Apollo only by the grace of Darius himself. 300 talents of frankincense, by the way, is in the range of 17,000 pounds, which, if true, is an astounding quantity to burn as an offering. So, as Tom Holland points out in his book Persian Fire, the Persian fleet departed Delos with the two symbols of their shock and awe campaign still rising into the sky behind them, the pillars of smoke on Naxos and the giant pillar of white smoke perfume on Delos. They also subjugated a few more islands as they drew closer to Attica itself, taking hostages and destroying towns and villages as they saw fit. Herodotus also alludes to an earthquake that shook Delos after the Persian fleet departed, which was an apparent fulfillment of prophecy and, quote, a portent by which the gods revealed to mortals the evils that were going to befall them. Always the drama queen there, Herodotus. But then again, that is why we like you. We learn next that the Persian fleet decided to pick off the comparatively smaller and weaker city of Eretria, since it was situated on the island of Euboea, across the narrow strait that separated the island from Attica proper. The Athenians initially sent a force of 4,000 men over there to help the Eretrians fight, but when they arrived, they found that Eretria's citizens couldn't even agree amongst themselves whether they should fight, flee, or just surrender altogether. 
The Athenians wisely made their way back across the strait before the Persian fleet sailed into view, and when the Persians did arrive in Euboea, the city of Eretria did not stand a chance. The fleet landed at several different locations on the island's long coast, disembarking and then converging to attack the city from a few different angles of approach. There wasn't really a battle to speak of since the Eretrians had withdrawn behind the city walls. Persia besieged them for six days, and on day number seven, a few within the walls betrayed their fellow citizens and opened the gate to the attackers. Persia, of course, flooded in, ransacked the city, and burned the temples as vengeance for the temples that had been burned in Sardis during the Ionian Revolt. Remember that Darius singled out Eretria and Athens because they had sent ships and soldiers to aid the Ionians in that ill-fated revolt. It's here that the story begins to center in on the plain of Marathon, for it's to Marathon that the Persian fleet sailed after they'd destroyed Eretria. They were directed to Marathon by a man named Hippias, he had once been the tyrant of Athens, as had his father, Pesistratus, and it's the general thought that despite the convoluted backstory that saw Hippias wind up in Persia, and as part of this Persian invasion, he himself may have believed that Persia would reward him with control of his native city if he assisted the Persian invasion. He may also have thought that he could take the edge off the destruction that Persia's leadership had in mind for Athens, although it's doubtful that Darius would have shown mercy. It's also doubtful that Hippias cared too much, but I suppose if he wanted to become the ruler of the city and the region, he would have wanted something there left to rule over. Regardless of his motivations, we know that Hippias directed the Persian fleet to land at Marathon for this reason. Marathon was the name of both the plain where the cavalry forces of the Persians could have free reign, but Marathon was also the name of the bay that lay off the coast. The Bay of Marathon was ideal. It's been described as a scimitar-shaped bay wide and sheltered from the winds, with beaches where the whole fleet of ships might be drawn up. The open plain beyond was, again, an ideal battle site for the Persian forces, and then from there they had several potential routes to Athens, the ultimate aim of their entire invasion. One benefit of modern technology, aside from podcasts themselves, another benefit is the ability to see locations like this one to help us get a better idea of the topography and the overall location where the events that we're discussing took place distant in the past. So with that in mind, I have embedded on the show notes page for this episode a Google Maps 360 view of the Bay and Plains of Marathon, it's from a vantage point looking down onto the bay and the beach and the plains where there's a city now today, but from this vantage point you get a perfect idea of the shelter that this bay would have provided to the Persian fleet, 
especially as you can see the long promontory at the bay's north end that was known as the dog's tail to the ancient Greeks. And when you see it, hopefully either from a map view or from this 360 panorama, you'll understand why it got that name, the dog's tail. Then uh, to the west of the dog's tail, the long open beach curved for several miles, and it was a perfect place for the Persians to pull their trireme fleet out of the water to dry, and uh, they began to set up camp there just off the beaches. It's hard a little bit to find a more literal and direct example of what a beachhead is than in this example here, although it's not 100% perfect. But go ahead and take a look at that view down onto Marathon from the mountain and picture the Athenian army marching to meet the Persians while hundreds and hundreds of triremes cover the beaches there. It seems that the Athenians either anticipated that the Persian fleet would land there at the Bay of Marathon, or they immediately received word and assembled their forces to march over and prevent the Persians from leaving their beachhead toward one of the routes that led to Athens. It's at this point in the story that Herodotus dives into several side notes and rabbit trails explanations that really aren't too applicable for us, but I'm sure you've all heard of the Athenian runner Pheidippides, who ran to ask for Sparta's military aid at Marathon. Sparta said no, surprise there. So then Pheidippides ran all the way back to Athens, left them with the news and got the news update from the city, and then he ran all the way back over to Marathon. That is one of the more recognizable side note stories that Herodotus includes at this juncture. Another one of them concerns the lead general for the Athenians at this battle, who was a man named Miltiades. So as to not follow Herodotus down any of those rabbit trails today, from a naval standpoint, there's not a ton to say about the battle itself that took place on the plain of Marathon. As for a brief description, um, the Greeks were outnumbered, as you might have guessed, but they widened their line of battle to match the Persian line. Their line was thinner, obviously, then. The Persian line was a lot deeper, but they were at least matched in terms of width. Through uh, this choice to match the Persian line and some other brilliant tactical planning on the part of the Greek generals, the Greeks ultimately won the day in what became a famous and important victory for them. The cavalry that the Persians brought over on their transport ships was suspiciously absent from the battlefield. At least that's what it seems like from a reading of Herodotus, so we'll get to some theories there in a moment. It's thought by many that Themistocles himself was present at Marathon and probably fought in the battle, although he was not named as one of the ten generals that day. There are a few lines in Herodotus where he describes the Persians fleeing to their ships once they could see that the battle was lost. And since the soldiers of Athens were all here at Marathon, 
they did what they could to hinder the Persians reaching their ships. The Greeks, since Athens was technically joined by soldiers from Plataea, but the Greeks here did manage to seize control of seven Persian ships before they pushed off into the water and rowed away. Herodotus uh, gives a brief mention to a fighter named Kynagyros, who had grabbed hold of the stern post of a Persian ship, maybe to try and swing himself up on board the ship, but as he held onto the stern, a Persian with an axe chopped off his hand, and Kynagyros bled out there right on the beach. He was one of only 203 Greeks to die at Marathon, while the Persian casualties are commonly given to be in the range of four to 5,000. It's quite possible that the Greek casualty figures were much higher, but the winner does tend to write history. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the cavalry horses and riders were strangely absent from the battlefield of Marathon, and one would think that they could have turned the tide there in favor of the Persians, given that the battle took place on a rather open plain. A theory that several historians have proposed is that the Persians secretly boarded their cavalry forces back onto the ships under the cover of darkness that night before the battle, and then put out to sea out of view of the shore. The idea was that if the Persian army won the battle, the ships would get a signal to simply sail back and meet them, or maybe sail around to Athens and meet them there to continue their ultimate mission. If the Persian army lost the battle, as the case proved to be that day, a different signal would alert the ships to make haste around Cape Sunium and to attack the immediate area, and even Athens herself, before the Athenian army could make it back to defend their city. As I think I mentioned, basically all the fighting men of Athens had left the city to come to the plain of Marathon, so the city was essentially undefended here. The Persians were defeated at Marathon, as we know, as we've outlined, and as the remainder of their army and the ships of rowers and surviving soldiers shoved off from the beach, Herodotus describes the Greek army witnessing some type of signal reflected off of a shiny surface up atop the mountain. The signal was directed out to sea, we presume toward the Persian horse transport ships that may have secretly boarded before the battle. Now, many historians discount this detail that Herodotus includes altogether, and I admit it does sound a bit strange to me. It seems to stretch credulity a slight bit. It's debatable whether a signal like this would have been visible far out to sea, although it may have been. I can't say that I've actually tested it or that I know much objectively to say whether it's possible or not. Um, it is a little bit strange to know how a signal like this could have conveyed useful information to the ships that lay that far out, but I'm sure they could have arranged some type of indicator for the ships to know which of the two options they ought to take. 
However here, for me, the strangest part is this one. If we assume that the signal was meant to alert the ships to make haste for Athens, maybe it meant that the Athenian army was still on the beaches and that the city lay open to attack, that seems the most logical meaning it could have held. If that assumed meaning is true, why did the Persian fleet not actually make it around to Athens in time to do anything at all? For, you see, immediately following their successful stand against the Persian army, the Athenians pulled an about-face and speed-marched 26 miles from the beach at Marathon back across Attica to their home city, and as they marched, they probably prayed to their gods that a black mass of Persian ships wasn't waiting for them stretched along Phaleron. For 26 heart-pounding miles, they marched. But they, of course, arrived back at Athens before the Persian fleet had even sailed into view of the city, which is a remarkable achievement, it has to be said. This post-battle march is the marathon march that inspired the creation of the marathon race as it exists in the modern Olympic Games, by the way. The marathon as we think of it in modern times wasn't actually inspired by the what was probably mythical run of Pheidippides to tell Athens that the battle had been won. Anyway, as we said, the Greeks beat the Persian navy back to Athens, and as Herodotus writes it, quote, The barbarians anchored their ships off Phaleron, held their ships there for a while, and then sailed back to Asia. And with that, the second Persian invasion of Greece had ended. With the invasion averted a second time, in a fitting parallel to the rise of democratic representation in city-states around Greece, the Greeks who fell in battle at Marathon were buried on the battlefield, and an epigram was erected there in their memory. The mound actually still stands to this day, and it's details like this one that really fascinate me in research, but that I don't feel like we should really devote undue time to here on the podcast. So, as I tend to do, let me encourage you to seek out any of the other Hellenic-focused podcasts that I've mentioned before. I'm sure they'll get into more detail about Marathon and the political and other aspects that were connected to this seminal event in Greek history. For us now, it's a good place to consider the implications that this Greek victory had for her naval situation. We'll spend a bit of time considering those matters, and then we can move forward a few years to address some of the events that occurred between the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE and the Persian invasion led by Xerxes in 480, hopefully setting us up to get into the real meat of naval conflict between these two cultures in our next episode and those immediately following. To clearly summarize the effects of the victory at Marathon, I'm going to read a few lines from Hammond's History of Ancient Greece. He writes, quote, The victory of Marathon did not avert the invasion of Greece by Persia with finality. It keyed the fighting spirits of Athens to the highest pitch, 
It showed to Sparta the conditions under which Greek infantry could defeat Persian infantry. It inspired other Greek city-states with the will to resist. These three consequences were indispensable to the future salvation of Greece. And no disagreement from me at all there with those three items that he outlines. However, I think we could easily add a fourth consequence that is right on par with the other three. Our fourth consequence is, as you might expect, related to the naval strength and situation of Athens. So let's see what we can add to the mix here. In essence, it's a simple point yet a crucial one. The Athenian navy prior to the Battle of Marathon in the summer of 490 BCE was effectively incapable of standing up to the might of the Persian navy, especially in a direct confrontation. We saw via the description of the build-up to the battle that the Persians managed to assemble a fleet of 600 triremes, according to Herodotus anyhow. There were almost certainly an additional number of transport ships and smaller vessels, so Persia had a formidable number of ships at her disposal, thanks to controlling the various cities and regions of old-time Phoenicia and the other sea powers in the eastern Mediterranean. In contrast, we discussed at length last episode the relative strength of the Athenian navy in the years prior to 490 BCE. And unless there's a big hole left in the historical record by Herodotus, in his telling of the history anyway, then Athens hadn't done much of anything to bolster her navy before Marathon. There's no mention of it, so we can probably safely assume that none of the Greek city-states sent any ships out to stand up to the second Persian invasion, so that's rather telling as well to me. Now, getting back to the Athenian buildup of her naval strength, though, we saw that during the heraldless war between Athens and Aegina, Athens had a trireme fleet of 50 ships. They basically bought 20 more from Corinth, and as we think that the heraldless war narrative occurred relatively near in time to 490 BCE, it seems that when Persia launched her invasion, the one that culminated in the Battle of Marathon, it seems that at this time Athens had a trireme strength of around 75 ships, maybe 100 if we're extremely generous, but that seems unlikely. Themistocles at this time obviously hadn't had too much luck implementing his naval strength policy, the new harbor at Piraeus was still only partially finished as well, since he'd only been the Archon for a one-year term, and after Marathon, he really still faced a struggle to convince Athens that his vision would be the ultimate salvation of Greece. The Greek victory at Marathon delayed Persia's advance long enough that Themistocles could go back to work in the political sphere to try and make his vision for the future a reality. Practically speaking, uh, the victory gave Athens the time it needed to build a navy that could actually rival the fleet of Persia. Again, 
It may seem like a simple, obvious point even, but it's still a crucial one. Herodotus says much later in his history of this war as a whole with the Persians, he says that if the Athenians had evacuated their land in terror of the danger approaching them, no one would have tried to oppose the king at sea. When he makes that claim, he's writing in reference to the events that occurred later, in 480, when Xerxes invaded Greece. But the point perfectly applies back to this invasion ten years earlier. If Athens had evacuated and given Persia control of Attica, or even if she had made a valiant stand at Marathon but had been defeated there, then Persia would have overrun Attica and had total control of the sea as well. It would have been only a matter of time for Persian reinforcements to arrive and to then plan an all-out assault on the Spartans in the Peloponnese, with the luxury then of launching an assault both by land and sea, basically however the Persians wished. Had Athens fallen at Marathon, then all of Greece would have been subsumed to the Persian flood. I think there's little doubt about that. But the stunning victory at Marathon preserved Athens and afforded her the chance to put more focus on her navy, giving her the chance to oppose the Persian king at sea sometime in the future. Maybe I'm belaboring the point here, so let me drop in a quote from the Cornelius Nepos treatment of Themistocles in his collection called Lives of Eminent Commanders. Nepos was a Roman biographer writing in the 1st century BCE, and in his writings on Themistocles, he claimed that the Battle of Salamis, quote, may be compared with the triumph at Marathon, for the greatest fleet in the memory of man was conquered in like manner at Salamis by a small number of ships. Marathon made Salamis possible, and in similar manners, the Greeks defeated Persia both on land and at sea. Talking about Salamis too much is putting us a bit out ahead of our skis, so let's shift gears and talk a bit about what Athens and Themistocles did with the time that they'd won themselves on the battlefield at Marathon. Immediately following the victory at Marathon, it appeared that Athens, buoyed by her successes, decided to go on the offensive, to a degree, anyhow. Not directly against Persia, necessarily, but against the Cycladic islands that had chosen to bow to Persian pressure rather than resist when the Persian fleet had been crossing in the summer of 490. Naxos, as we said, had been destroyed by the Persians, so after leading the army to victory at Marathon, Miltiades was given control of the 70 Athenian ships, and he sailed off to the island that had allowed Persia to use its land as a base. It's claimed that this island even gave a trireme to the Persians to use in their invasion. The island was a neighbor of Naxos, this one was called Peros, and although Herodotus says that Miltiades used the Persian invasion as his pretext to invade the island, 
it does make sense to me that Athens would want to prevent Persia from using these Cycladic islands as stopping points in any potential future invasion. It's really quite similar to the way in which Athens and Sparta took over Aegina, where there as well they used Persia as a pretext to settle a more personal dispute, but at the same time they did make a strategic move to limit Persian options in the greater sense. It seems like it's a mixture of good and bad motivations, basically is what I'm saying. Now, while it would have made sense to limit Persia's options in relation to the Cycladic Islands, and I think these islands can properly be called Cycladic Islands, but uh, don't quote me on that. I'll look it up after I record this, and uh, apologies if I'm wrong applying that term there. Anyway, the raid that Miltiades led against the island of Paros quickly failed. Miltiades was wounded during the siege, and uh, returning home to Athens as a failure, he was then brought to trial by some aristocratic rivals, who claimed that he deceived the city by promising to conquer Paros, and failing, he wasted time and money when he returned empty-handed. This is another pretext that these aristocratic rivals used to bring Miltiades to trial, and really the results of the trial wouldn't have mattered since Miltiades had been wounded during the battle, and he died a few weeks after the trial because of an infection that took hold in that wound. Nevertheless, the fact that this trial even occurred in the first place did seem to signal an intensified period of political infighting among the Athenians. So while it seemed that Athens was going to be proactive and plan ahead for the inevitable next Persian invasion, the death of Miltiades resulted in an Athens that basically reverted back to her previous state of waiting and watching without taking much proactive precaution toward the future of her own safety. She was focused more on the political conflict between the aristocratic families than on the possibility of another external threat. It's at this juncture in the history of Athens that an interesting development in the democratic form of government came into more popular usage. The development is an idea that's come into popular usage as a term even for us today. The word ostracism is widely understood in the general sense. But back here in Athens, it had a very specific political meaning. Aristotle claimed that the practice of ostracism was thought up by Cleisthenes and instituted during his period of reform back in 506 BCE, but no ostracisms were ever enforced until this period in the immediate aftermath of Marathon and the death and trial of Miltiades. So I'm sure the idea and process of ostracism is something that most of you are probably already familiar with, so I won't belabor this point. Basically, each year, those allowed to vote in Athens, meaning Athenian men only, and not slaves as well, the voting men of Athens would cast their vote for the man that they wanted to banish from the city for a set period of 10 years. 
Many voting citizens were illiterate, so scribes would be ready to scratch the name that any voter wished onto a potsherd, and then the citizen would drop his ostraca, it was called, into an urn. The ostraca were totaled up, and there's a few different interpretations, but if basically if the quorum of 6,000 total votes was met, then the man with the majority of votes against his name would be ostracized from Athens. Let me crib a few lines from Robin Lane Fox here to succinctly describe ostracism's importance for us. He writes, quote, Politically, the years after the great victory at Marathon in 490 showed a new polarization. In the 480s, Cleosthenes' device of ostracism began to be used by the people against prominent nobles. On many of the surviving bits of potsherd, candidates were accused of Medism, or favoring Persia, which the events of 490 had made into such an unambiguous crime. In 487, access to the yearly magistracy of the Athenians, or the archonship as it was called, was widened. In 486, comic dramas became part of the public festivals. In due course, they made fun of personal and political targets, a sign, like the personalized ostraca, of increasing democratic freedom. In relation to this point, uh, we can look to Aristotle's writing about the Athenian constitution. He claimed in that that the reforms of ostracism, quote, had been enacted owing to the suspicion felt adjacent to the men in the positions of power because Pisistratus, when leader of the people and general, set himself up as tyrant. What Aristotle's saying there is basically that ostracism was seen, and accurately so, as a check against the ambitions of a would-be tyrant. Now, it could also be used to remove would-be or suspected medizers, as we know that it was used because many of the voters would write rather cruel nicknames on the ostraca, calling somebody lover of Darius or something along those lines, meaning that they thought this political figure was too tightly connected with the Persians or may have had sympathies that lied with Persian interests, therefore that was why they needed to be ostracized. Ostracism could also be used simply as a way to make a popular politician the scapegoat for a failed policy in Athens. So the practice of ostracism had a few different uses. In general, it was used to remove a few aristocratic figures from the families that vied for control of the Athenian centers of power. Ostracism and a few of the other democratic reforms in 487 and in the years following Marathon, they were intended to limit the damage that political infighting could inflict on the strength of the city and the city-state as a unified political entity. I think that these reforms were a natural progression of the democratic reforms that had begun back in 506, as we saw ostracism connected with the reforms of Cleosthenes. However, if you take into account the timing, 
after the narrow escape at Marathon. Um, it seems, looking back from our vantage point, that some of these political reforms, including ostracism, had the effect of making Athens better able to remain unified and cohesive in the face of an external threat than maybe she had commonly done in the past. But it's hard to say how much the Athenians really understood that this is what was going on in that moment of their history. Maybe, though, we could look at the Ostraca as exit poles in a way, I guess, because we do see a large number of Ostraca inscribed with those anti-Persian nicknames, as I said. So it's clear that Persia did weigh on the minds of a fair number of voters. I'd be curious to maybe look at the tallies of Ostraca found to see how many of them mentioned Persia to some effect. Alright, I hope that wasn't too much of a rabbit trail. Getting back to the script today, one man who we've already spent a lot of time considering, that man is Themistocles, well, he wasn't immune from the effects of ostracism, as fickle as the whims of democracy can sometimes be, I fear. His name appeared on many ostraca, although not in conjunction with anti-Persian sentiment, at least. He was always a strong opponent of Persia. Anyway, there are many surviving examples of his name on pieces of Ostraca. Um, I'll post on the show notes page for this episode a picture that I took back with my iPhone 4S when there was a special exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago. I think that was in 2015. Anyway, the, the photo does have some glare uh, in places, but the bottom Ostraca in the photo is very clearly visible. You can tell the name of Themistocles inscribed there, the name of Neocles inscribed underneath it, because most of the time Themistocles, when he was being voted for ostracism, they would write Themistocles, son of Neocles, on their potsherd. Anyway, I hope the image is clear enough for you to make out the name there. Um, it's amazing to see these pulled up as they've laid buried under Athenian soil for several thousand years. They're a very direct connection to the stories that we're talking about. By virtue of his prominent position in Athenian politics, Themistocles did open himself up to the possibility of being ostracized. However, in the years following Marathon, when aristocrats were being ostracized at a fairly regular clip, Themistocles escaped the process intact. He continued to advocate for his vision that naval strength would be the salvation of Greece, and it's his continuing work on that front that we will continue to consider in our episode next time. While Athens was focused on democratic reform and the other issues that we've examined today, Darius and the Persians had sailed from the coast of Marathon in 490 and wasted little time in hatching bigger and better plans to level against Athens. Herodotus says that when Darius received the report about what happened at Marathon, that, quote, he reacted with an intense fury and became even more determined to make war on Hellas than he had been before. 
At once, he began to issue commands and to send messengers throughout the cities of the empire with instructions to each of them to provide a great deal more than they had provided previously, including horses, food, warships, and transport boats. Herodotus goes on to say that the empire was thrown into a commotion for three years trying to comply with these orders from Darius. In the fourth year after Marathon, which was 486 BCE, Darius's grand plans of revenge were thrown a bit off track when Egypt revolted against Persian rule. Darius, understandably miffed by this new development, and I can't help but envision a scene somewhat like that in The Lord of the Rings, where the Eye of Sauron atop his mighty and dark tower is fixed on his object of contempt, the Athenians, when it suddenly is forced to swing to the south and east as the Egyptian revolt seizes his attention and he becomes fixated with punishing them before he can return to his earlier goal of punishing Greece. That's basically what Darius did. Um, I just like that visual in my head. Rather unlike Sauron, when he was re-manifest in Middle-earth and projected his will as the Eye atop Baradur, Darius in 486 BCE was still subject to the limits and frailties of a physical body. He died in the middle of preparing to re-subjugate Egypt, after which he had planned to return his focus to punishing Athens. Still, though, he didn't die before he managed to appoint an heir to his throne. So next time, we'll pick up the story with the entrance of that heir, his son Xerxes, to the stage, alongside Themistocles, who has already occupied the stage for us recently. These two men factored heavily in the moves that their respective cultures took in the years after 486. So next time, we'll consider those moves and then the opening moves of the most well-known invasion of the Greco-Persian War. I anticipate including the naval battle of Artemisium next time, but depending how things fall into place as far as narrative, maybe that battle will get an episode all its own. We'll just have to see how that shapes up. As I wrap up the episode here today, I do need to do a bit of catching up to thank both those who left new reviews of the podcast on iTunes, along with the new members who've joined the crew as supporters. In that vein, then, thank you to iTunes users Randolphus, BurkeF123, Sombra Drift, and Clayton2815. All of your reviews are appreciated, as always, and just a reminder that they do help us maintain some visibility in iTunes uh, to the point where people searching for new history podcasts to dive into, maybe they'll just be able to find us a little easier. Thank you again for the reviews. Some of our newer crew members, by the way, are as follows. A hearty welcome aboard to Ein or Inne. Um, I'm unfamiliar with this name and I don't know how to pronounce it, so I apologize to you, but thank you for becoming a crew member. Welcome aboard as well to Dave, Alain, Paul, Stephen, Trent, and then wrapping up with another name that I apologize for pronouncing horribly. I think it's Kaloyan, 
but I'm not 100% sure. Anyways, whether I can pronounce your name properly or not, it's a huge pleasure to continue adding crew members who want to help our little endeavor here continue to remain seaworthy. And I humbly thank each of you who have invested your time and money into listening to and supporting the podcast. Your support goes toward matters like paying for the hosting costs for the website and the podcast, which are not insubstantial costs, by the way, but they've also helped me get some source material that I might not have gotten otherwise, and I'm continuing to think up ideas to bring interesting additional things to the podcast as a whole. Crew members, of course, also gain access to our crew members' hold, where there are now 10 bonus episodes about various topics connected with the podcast, along with periodically an updated timeline, uh, interactive timeline of the history that we cover, and transcripts of the episodes with images included as well. Sources in the transcripts also. So I try to link everything as well as I can so you can track down the source material if you want to. You can see images of the things we're talking about, maps of the various geographical um, elements we discuss. I think it really helps you get a better grasp on the history as a whole. I really don't have too much beyond those typical shoutouts here in conclusion today. I'll keep it short and sweet. I've already got some work done on our next episode, so that ought to be out at some point in March, and then a member episode is in the works as well. Perhaps the only other news of note is that I've decided to try my hand at building a wooden model ship. Uh, I've chosen an America's Cup yacht to begin with because I think it's a little more accessible for a beginner. So, with that in mind, if any of our listeners are more experienced hands at this craft than I am, I'd love to hear any tips or tricks that you might have learned over the years. I built some plastic models when I was a bit younger, and although they did turn out pretty well for the age I was when I was doing them, I've never tried working with wood before, especially on such a small scale as this yacht model feels. However, it's all a learning process I know, and I'm sure that no one's first ship is perfect. Anyway, if any of you are interested in the craft of model shipbuilding or in my progress on this first one, and hopefully any I progress on to do after that, I do plan to keep a build log on the podcast website. I'll set up a new tab at the top menu or somewhere where you can find that easily, but I'll keep that updated complete with photos and progress as that slowly progresses probably. So feel free to check that out whenever I get to a stage where there's actually something to share. All right, crew, it was great to have you aboard today. Until next time, when we consider one of the first major naval battles of the Persian invasion led by Xerxes, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Fair winds and following seas. <laughs>